The call for nominations for the 2024 ASA Award for Excellence in Research and the 2024 James E. Cottrell, M.D. Presidential Scholar Award is now open. Learn more about the award's requirements and submit your nomination at anesthesiology.org. Act fast. Nominations are due March 31st, 2024. Hello, I'm Jim Rathmill, Editor-in-Chief of Anesthesiology, here with the March 2024 podcast. This month, I'll describe several studies focusing on common surgical issues. One study explores whether general or spinal anesthesia is better for hip fracture surgery. Another study looks at the common problem of the handoff of surgical patients from one anesthesia clinician to another. Our clinical focus review this month discusses the management and resuscitation of patients with hemorrhagic shock. And this month's review article offers readers a better understanding of recovery from general anesthesia. Let's start with a special article on the impact of basic and translational research on clinical practice. This article is written by Juan Keita and Dan Sessler, and it discusses clinical trials examining the association between regional anesthesia and cancer recurrence, and the disconnect between these clinical trial findings and the basic science findings in cell and animal models. They discuss one major clinical trial studying the link between paravertebral anesthesia and breast cancer recurrence, which found no association. Yet preclinical evidence had demonstrated that spinal anesthesia suppresses metastatic dissemination by inhibiting surgical stress and boosting the immunological response. This trial, along with others, found that regional anesthesia does not reduce cancer recurrence or improve survival after cancer surgery. Keda and Sessler review factors that might have contributed to the discordance and what can be learned from these findings. In an invited editorial, Jian Hu, a leading cancer biologist, remarks that many factors might contribute to a clinical trial failure. Dr. Hu also reflects on how even these negative trials can deepen our understanding of the underlying disease mechanisms. Next, let's look at spinal and general anesthesia and ask if one has better outcomes than the other. Both are commonly used for patients undergoing surgery on their lower extremities. Mark Newman and fellow researchers theorized that spinal anesthesia would be associated with better long-term outcomes when compared with general anesthesia. They conducted an analysis of long-term outcomes comparing patients who received spinal versus general anesthesia for hip fracture surgery. This was a planned secondary analysis of the regional versus general anesthesia for promoting independence after hip fracture, or the so-called REGAIN trial. The primary outcomes at 60 days were similar and were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2021. In this multi-center trial, 1,600 patients over 50 years old were randomized to receive spinal or general anesthesia in a one-to-one ratio using permuted block randomization with variable block sizes. They found that spinal anesthesia versus general anesthesia had no impact on survival, and this is now out to the one-year follow-ups after surgery. There were also no differences in ambulation recovery, inability to walk, or new transition to a nursing home. In an accompanying editorial, Elizabeth Whitlock and Alexander Smith emphasized the value for anesthesiologists knowing that any well-conducted anesthetic, general or spinal, can be safely used without compromising outcomes. They tell us what most of us are thinking after years of believing otherwise. 
just how remarkable it is that there are no differences in outcomes between general and spinal anesthesia. Listen to the featured authored podcast for more details about the study's findings. Another surgical study looks at a common problem we all face in transferring patient care from one anesthesia clinician to another. During this handover process, we relay vital patient information, but critical details are often lost. Can this loss of information lead to adverse patient outcomes? Amit Saha and Scott Siegel hypothesized that the use of a structured handover tool would help improve outcomes. Using retrospective outcome data, they identified adult patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. They further identified cases where there was a change in attending anesthesiologist. Cases with handovers were associated with an increase in 30-day mortality and postoperative death. Part of the institution's quality improvement initiative was use of a structured handover tool in the EPIC electronic health record. Following this institutional move to structured handoffs, there was a decline in apparent risks, even with no change in handover frequency. Jeff Cooper and Megan Lane Fall say in an accompanying editorial, this is a call to action for anesthesiologists to create a detailed, structured process for transferring patient care to assure that patient information is transferred thoroughly and effectively. This article has a featured authored podcast where the author and editorialists share their views. How do we improve oxygenation in patients with ARDS? This question is explored in our next study. Lung protective ventilation aims to limit lung stress and strain. The pulmonary consequences of positive pressure mechanical ventilation are mediated by excessive distension pressures. High distending pressures are associated with greater risk for mortality in patients with ARDS. Melody Parfait and colleagues hypothesized that indirect stimulation of the diaphragm would improve oxygenation. In this single-arm crossover study, researchers enrolled 12 adult patients who were mechanically ventilated with moderate ARDS. A single lumen catheter was inserted into the left subclavian vein and two sets of electrode arrays designed to transvenously and selectively stimulate the left and right phrenic nerves were inserted. Each patient went through four consecutive 60-minute sessions. The second and fourth sessions included diaphragmatic stimulation. Diaphragm stimulation was achieved in all patients, and it led to an increase in transdiaphragmatic pressure. This preliminary work suggests that diaphragm neurostimulation could positively affect lung mechanics and hemodynamics. Next, let's look at postoperative complications, which are the third leading cause of death worldwide after surgery, with postoperative pulmonary complications the second most common cause after surgical site infection. Protective ventilation with positive end expiratory pressure and alveolar recruitment maneuvers has been shown to reduce postoperative pulmonary complications. More recently, the concept of mechanical power has emerged. Mechanical power is defined as the energy transferred to the respiratory system and the lungs during mechanical ventilation. Researchers led by Bertrand Eleftherian hypothesized that mechanical power would be associated with postoperative pulmonary complication rates. In this single-center retrospective study, researchers reviewed data from patients aged 18 or older 
who underwent major elective surgery and required general anesthesia with tracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. Patients were exposed to intraoperative mechanical ventilation following general anesthesia. 6% of patients developed one or more postoperative pulmonary complications. This study supports the association between intraoperative ventilation and postoperative pulmonary complications and suggests that decreased rather than increased tidal volume, decreased compliance, increased mechanical power, and decreased end tidal CO2 were all independently associated with postoperative pulmonary complications. Our next study explores the use of topical lidocaine to treat mechanical neck pain, which is a leading cause of disability worldwide. Currently, there are no approved treatments for neck pain, but some studies have suggested that topical lidocaine may help decrease pain in this group. Steve Cohen and colleagues tested the efficacy of a new lidocaine patch formulation that was recently approved for use in the United States for treating mechanical neck pain. In this placebo-controlled crossover trial, they recruited 76 patients with neck pain. Patients were randomized into one of two groups, placebo patch for four weeks followed by lidocaine patch after a one-week washout period or a lidocaine patch followed by placebo after the same washout period. There was a small but insignificant difference in pain relief with the lidocaine patch when compared with placebo. Despite these negative findings, the authors call for additional studies evaluating alternative products and dosing methods. Next, we'll discuss a study that examines how painful peripheral neuropathy might contribute to impaired cognition. Peripheral nerve injury induces changes in astrocytes located in the dorsal hippocampus. Shuang Han and fellow researchers hypothesized that impaired lactate release from dysfunctional astrocytes in the dorsal hippocampal CA1 region would contribute to memory deficits. They used a spared injury nerve model to induce neuropathic pain in experimental animals. To test behavior, they applied object recognition and conditioned place preference tests. They found that impaired lactate release from dysfunctional astrocytes was associated with memory deficits, and stimulating the locus ceruleus could potentially improve the memory deficits. In an accompanying editorial, Vivian Tofik writes that these experiments demonstrate that CA1 astrocytes and their lactate release are necessary for pain modulation and memory formation. Further, this work makes a definitive step toward our understanding of how hippocampal astrocytes contribute to memory deficits in those with chronic pain. In this month's clinical focus review, Justin Richards, Deborah Stein, and Thomas Scalia look at the management of resuscitation from hemorrhagic shock. Recognizing the importance of altered physiology and hemodynamic resuscitation and correcting coagulopathy are critical in patients with active bleeding. Damage control resuscitation, which has evolved over 20 years, is now the foundation of hemorrhagic shock management. Damage control resuscitation emphasizes rapid identification of hemorrhage, implementation of massive transfusion protocols, resuscitation with plasma-based blood products, and correction of coagulopathy and metabolic derangements. Widespread adoption of damage control resuscitation may lead to earlier recovery. 
In this review, the authors address damage control resuscitation and the anesthesiologist's role in managing severe traumatic hemorrhage. This month's review article discusses recovery from general anesthesia. Recovery from general anesthesia is a multi-step process that requires the reversal or discontinuation of anesthetic drugs. Today, we lack drugs that can reverse the unconsciousness induced by general anesthetics. Recovery can be highly variable depending on the anesthetic used, the patient's condition, and the duration of surgery. Drew Cylinder and co-authors examine the ongoing research searching for ways to reverse general anesthesia. Various potential methods, including hydrostatic pressure application, receptor-specific antagonists, stimulants, and neural circuit manipulations are described. This review details endpoints that might be used to assess reversal or recovery and explains how a better understanding of distant pre- and postsynaptic targets could inform future approaches for discovering reversal agents. Thank you for listening this month, and please join me again next month for highlights from the April 2024 issue. The call for nominations for the 2024 ASA Award for Excellence in Research and the 2024 James E. Cottrell, M.D. Presidential Scholar Award is now open. Learn more about the award's requirements and submit your nomination at anesthesiology.org. Act fast. Nominations are due March 31, 2024.